0: And I uh, want to talk to you today, if uh, you consider yourself to be a good and decent person, uh, this message is really for you. I um, want to talk to all the good people out there, the people that are kind, the people that treat each other well, the people that were, you know, you were probably raised right, you know, taught by your parents, treat others the way you want them to treat you, and you, you don't steal uh, from people, and if you ever did steal some candy from a store, but bet your parents probably took you back to that store and made you apologize and pay for it. Uh, but, you know, you, you run off the track a little bit here and there, but you get br- right back on, and you're a good and decent person. Uh, you, you try to live by the golden rule, and, and uh, you're kind to other people. But I want you to know that uh, if that describes you, uh, you, you have the same problem that I had. And the the problem that you have, if you're that type of person, is this, that you're a good and decent and kind person. That's the problem. And I'm not not suggesting that you go the other direction and become, you know, the worst version of yourself. You break bad and just, uh, you know, be that type of person that becomes evil and horrible to everybody else. We don't need any more of those in the world. Okay, I'm not suggesting that at all, but I want to just, as a way of illustration, uh, point out to you a little bit about my life. You know, I grew up in in church, as many of you know. Um, My my mom uh, played the piano for the youth choir in church. And I remember when I was about six or seven years old, dad had to work, and I was there with mom in the youth choir. Even though everyone in the choir was actually teenagers, I was sitting off to the side. And mom was playing the piano and the music minister was leading. And and the music minister had some type of incentive for the kids that would come back the next week and be able to quote Psalm 100. And uh, I think they were going on a mission trip and they got a discount on the trip if they were able to come back and quote Psalm 100, which is five verses long. And so uh, I took uh, my Bible, this one here. This is what happens when you get old. You need bigger print. But I took this Bible right here, still got my name imprinted on the front. I think my, my mom had gotten that for me a long time ago. And I turned to Psalm 100, and it's impossible, probably, for you to see, uh, but I underlined it with my pen, with my uh, government pen that my dad had brought home with him as an air traffic controller. They had extra pens, and so he brought one home. That's probably the closest dad's ever come to stealing. But anyway, took one of these pens, one of my favorite pens, and I underlined Psalm 100. And uh, and I memorized it that week. It's of course, is a King James Bible. And I, I memorized it. And I think, if I can try to quote it from memory it says make a joyful noise unto the lord all ye lands serve the lord with gladness come before his presence with singing know ye that the lord he is god it is he that is ha, that hath made us and not we ourselves we are his people and the sheep of his pasture enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise Be thankful unto him and bless his name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. And his truth endureth to all generations. When you train a child in the way they should go, Scripture says something about them coming back to it. Being rooted deeply in it. And so I came back that next Sunday Youth choir, and the music minister, if I recall correctly, asked if any of the youth, any of the teenagers, memorized it. And of course, they had not. And I raised my hand and I quoted it. And uh, and you might be wondering, well, you know, why is Pastor David bragging on himself? Why is he patting himself on the back? I'll tell you why in just a minute. Uh, I want you to know that I was really a good kid. You know, really a good kid, decent kid. Went to Sunday school, went to vacation Bible school in the summer, every summer. Went to kids' choir and then youth choir when I got old enough, and then went on choir mission trips and went to youth camp every summer. Um, Got good grades in school. In fact, my grades were good enough that I received an invitation to go to MIT Um, and uh, turned that down. But as a kid, I I rarely got in trouble. Maybe that was due to the fact that my older siblings were much older and they had moved out and... When you're the, being raised as the only child, it's hard to blame your siblings for bad stuff that you do, so you learn not to do bad stuff. So, um, But, you know, I, I rarely got in trouble. I think one time I smarted off to a teacher and um, got in trouble for that, uh, but never did drugs, never smoked a cigarette, never drank alcohol. I mean, that's pretty good badness, you know? And And outwardly, outwardly, I was decent and kind and respectful, and you might wonder what happened to you, you know. Um, I was religious growing up outwardly. I was all of these things. But that was my problem, because when you are all of those things, you develop within you something called self-righteousness. Where you look at yourself and you compare yourself to others and say, Well, oh, I'm okay. I'm okay. You know, God, God's okay with me. I'm, I'm good. And so you have this self-righteous attitude. Even if it doesn't develop into an arrogant, mean-spirited kind of self-righteousness, it's still within you a self-righteous attitude where you, you fail to truly see who you really are in God's eyes. Because self-righteousness, when it builds within your heart, it puts blinders on. And you, don't, you think you're seeing yourself correctly, but you're really not. Not according to God's standards. And so you become blinded to the truth. And this story of mine, it's not unique to me. It, it may be, you may have a similar story of your own. Uh, but there's story of a story of a young boy uh, two millennia ago. His name, uh, his name was Nico. And uh, Nico was, uh, if we know anything about Nico and the way he turned out to be, uh, we have reason to believe that the stereotypical story that I'm about to tell you would be true of Nico. Because uh, we know how Nico turned out to be, and if he turned out to be this way, then as a young man he was probably raised in a very religious family, a Jewish family, or an Orthodox Jew in fact. And they probably took him to synagogue every week. That's our equivalent of church. And, and growing up in that day and in that area, when you went to school, you were studying the Bible, the Hebrew Bible. And specifically, you're, you were studying the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And so every day, he'd go along with the other kids. And all the kids in the Jewish community would gather together in a room just outside of the synagogue every day. And they would study the Torah, the first five books of our Bible together, and at age thirteen, something uh, interesting happens. you know that's when uh, Jewish boys are seen as men and Jewish girls are seen as women and because because of that dynamic, uh, the Jewish boys at that time would stop school and they would start learning a trade, they'd become an apprentice of of, of some sort, and this may have been true of of Nico uh, when he turned thirteen, but around that age, around thirteen to fifteen, uh what would happen in most Jewish communities was this. The rabbi would come along, and if he didn't already have his full slate of disciples, and usually a full slate of disciples for a rabbi in that day was five. And if he didn't have his full slate of disciples, he would round it out by looking over the young men that were of the proper age, about thirteen to fifteen and he would invite one of them or two of them or however many he needed to fill out a slate of disciples to become his disciple. And they would become his disciple this way. The rabbi would come up to the young man. And, and these, these young men, they were the best and the brightest. The rabbi's not going to choose someone who's, who sloughs off. He's not going to choose someone who uh, doesn't do good in school. who doesn't understand the Torah. He's going to choose the best and the brightest, the most well-behaved. And at some point, a rabbi came up to Nico and said these words, Follow me. That was the typical phrase used by rabbis when they would gather disciples to themselves. And, of course, you and I know about Jesus. He didn't have five. He had 12. He broke the mold there, but he had the same command, follow me. And so Nico became a follower, an apprentice to a rabbi, and if, if someone followed through like Nico did, then they would become a rabbi in training. They would become a true apprentice rabbi. And he, eventually, over the years, Nico would qualify, and he did qualify, to become a rabbi. And as Nico grew up, he was known by his full name, Nicodemus. And Nicodemus not only became a rabbi, he became a special kind of rabbi. He became a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were a certain sect within the Jewish community that were separatists. By being a separatist, what do I mean? Those Pharisees did not like to hang around people that could not speak Hebrew. And so, if you were Jewish, but your native language is Greek because you're raised far from Israel, they don't have time for you. Okay? That's what they would call Hellenists. You know, those were Greek speaking Jews. And, and, and you were sort of looked down upon, usually by the Pharisees. And so the Pharisees would separate themselves from them. In fact, the Pharisees would do their best to separate themselves from all of, all of the commoners. You know, they're just better. They're of, they're of a higher grade than the rest of uh, the folk out there. And so this was the, the group... That the, that the Nicodemus joined, and he became a part of, and they received him as a Pharisee. And the Pharisees would put on all the beautiful garb. And, and everyone would know, because they're dressed very elaborately, that this is a Pharisee coming in. This is a very holy man. This is a very important man. And so they were very public with the way they displayed their piety. Well, Nicodemus was not only a Pharisee, but he was also a member of the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin is a very elite group. Now, in that day, in different communities around what we would call modern-day Israel, there would be different groups of Sanhedrins. that would work as a tribunal council, and there would be about 23 of them uh, to decide court cases, to decide religious matters, and that type of thing. But there was one supreme Sanhedrin located in Jerusalem. And they didn't just have 23, but they had 71 members. And I think it was this group that, that Nicodemus uh, must have been a part of because he was a member of this ruling class of the Sanhedrin. Uh, the Sanhedrin, and they would rule all over, over the entire Jewish area in the Roman Empire, and they would make decisions. They'd make decisions about religion, about, about society, about political, anything with any of those types of ramifications. He was a member of this elite group. Well, we encounter this man, Nicodemus, in the Gospel of John, chapter 3. And I want you to take your Bible and turn to John, chapter 3, the Gospel of John. It's in the New Testament, the last third of your Bible. You'll come across Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. And in John, chapter 3, we're just going to look at three verses, sort of focus on three little verses But they're very telling verses. Very important verses. And here's what we read in John chapter 3 verse 1. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Verse 2. This man came to him, that's Jesus. This man came to Jesus at night. Why did he come at night? Because you don't want to be seen. If you're this highfalutin, if you're this important, this self-assured, but you want to have a conversation with this other man, this Jesus, you may not want to do it in the public arena because everyone would think that you're endorsing this man Jesus. And so he wasn't there yet. And so in, in, in John chapter 3, verse 2, he came to Jesus at night and he said... Rabbi, hang on just right, right there for a minute. Rabbi, we got two rabbis talking to each other. They're going to talk shop. You know what it means to talk shop. Not too long ago, we were having our men's breakfast a few months back, and there were a couple of uh, men there who had the same uh, the same type of business, and they were talking shop. And I was listening in. Half of it that they were talking about, I had no clue. They were talking about regulations in their workplace and stuff like that. No idea what they were talking about. You talk to teachers. They talk shop. You ask a teacher the question about, tell me about the teeks that you have. Now, a teacher here in Texas, they know what teeks are. Teeks rule their life. The rest of us, we have no clue. What do you mean teeks? What is that? You don't even know how to spell teeks. Okay here we have a couple of rabbis that are going to talk shop. Just private conversation, really. He comes to Jesus at night as a fellow rabbi and this is what he said. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one could perform these signs, you do, unless God were with him. What signs? By signs, that's John's way in his gospel of saying miracles. The miracles that Jesus did. You know, and and Jesus turned the water into wine at at, uh, the wedding feast in Canaan. and, And other things, Jesus brought healing to people. No one could do all these signs unless God were with him. This is the statement that Nicodemus makes to Jesus. And Jesus replies, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That phrase, born again, that's what we're talking about today. What does it mean to be born again? Literally, the phrase that Jesus used was this, born from above. You have to be born from above. Now, that phrase sort of implies that there's a distinction between regular birth, which we all know about regular birth, and being born from above. Born from above implies it's a heavenly birth. A spiritual birth. Now, I want you to notice what Nicodemus did not ask in verse 2. Nicodemus did not say, Rabbi, how does a man become born again? Nicodemus didn't ask that question. He didn't say, Rabbi, how can I enter the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God? He didn't ask that question. Nicodemus didn't say, Rabbi, how can I make sure I'm right with God? Nicodemus didn't ask that question. But Jesus answered, You must be born again. You see, Jesus knows what Nicodemus needs. And he got right to the point. And Nicodemus needed what I needed as a good Baptist kid growing up. Nicodemus needed what you need. What every decent person needs. Because you think about Nicodemus. This guy was decent. He was good. He was religious. Religious to the extreme. I mean, that became his profession. But Jesus made it very clear. Nicodemus no matter how good and decent, no matter what you believe about about these signs that I do, Nicodemus, you need a spiritual transformation. You need a new birth. You need a changed heart. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Let's talk about what it means to be born again. Being born again is an act of God where He gives new life to the person who believes. Think about that. Being born again is an act of God where He gives new life to the person who believes. Now you and I know what it means to be born physically. When you're born physically, whose child are you? I'm a child of my mother's, right? Right? Every human that is born becomes a child of his or her mother. Right? Being born spiritually makes you a child of God. Jesus says it's not enough for you to be born physically. All of us have. You must be born from above. You must be born again. Being born again is an act of God. Let's focus on that for a minute. It's an act of God. What does that mean? That when you become born again, what happened prior to that is that God was drawing you to Jesus. The Spirit of God was urging you, moving you, to consider who Jesus is. And to become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, God superintends events in your life so that you're given an opportunity to believe. What do I mean, God superintends events in your life? Maybe God makes sure that you're here at this very moment to hear this very message so that you would have an opportunity. To believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you think that if someone invited you to church today and you came to church, do you think that God did not have a hand in that? Of course he did. God had a hand in telling your loved one, telling your neighbor, telling your friend to invite you to church today, to hear this message. God superintends events. He's drawing you. He's calling you to believe. And so being born again is an act of God whereby He gives new life to the person who believes. Sometimes when God superintends events, it means that God compels one of His children to talk to you about your faith. God compels one of His children to pray for you, to cry for you, to urge you, to love you, to be kind to you. To help you understand what's really going on in your heart and mind. And what's going on in your heart and mind when you're being drawn by God is this. That there's a battle inside you that's being waged. A war that's being waged. And it's a war for your very soul. And so part of you is saying, ah, this Jesus stuff, it's not for me. You start thinking, "Well," What will others say if I become a follower of Jesus? And so there's part of you, and it's the pride within you, that pushes you aside and says, No, 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 you don't need to follow after Jesus. But there's something else within you in this battle that is drawing you to say yes to Jesus, to believe in Jesus. That's the Spirit of God working in you. He's working in you for you to say yes to Jesus. God is calling you. That's what is going on in this very critical moment when God is drawing you. Being born again is an act of God, and it's an act of God where He gives new life. Let's talk about that. What happens when, when God imparts life to someone In Titus chapter 3, verse 5, look at this verse. Look what it says. It says, He saved us, not by works of righteousness we've done. God saved us, not because you're decent and kind and nice and religious. Those are works of righteousness. That's not the basis of your salvation. God saves us, not because of that, but according to His mercy. Through the washing of regeneration. What does that mean, regeneration? To To be something that's regenerated is made new again. The word, the suffix, or the prefix re, re, means again. Generate means to create. God creates something new in you. How? Through the washing away of your sins. He creates you to be brand new and renewal by the Holy Spirit. That's what happens when you're born again. Also, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, the Bible puts it this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, meaning you're a part of the Christian faith, you are in Jesus Christ, he's a new creature. He's a new creation. The old has passed away. See, the new has come. You see, when you're born again and God transforms you and He imparts life to you, He makes everything brand new. Does that mean that He's going to make me into somebody I'm not? No, you're still going to be you. God gave you your personality. You're still going to be you but he's going to make you brand new from the inside out. Spiritually new. The old has passed away, the new has come. And so being born again is an act of God where he gives new life to the person who believes. And this is very critical. You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 5 puts it this way. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been, what? Born of God. Has been born of God. The new birth comes through your belief. And the question for you today is, are you ready today to believe? God has been drawing you. God is ready to impart new life to you. Are you ready to believe in Him, and you might say, "Well, why, why is it necessary? Why do I need to be born again? Why do I need to be born again?" Listen to what Bi- the Bible has to say in Romans chapter three, verse twenty-three. Here's why you need to be born again: for all of us have sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God. Another scripture in Ephesians chapter two, we're told this. This is written to Christians. Who used to be this way. It said, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Think about that. Spiritually, without Christ, you're dead, out, deceased, incapable of being alive spiritually. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, Made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. Think about that. We were dead, absolutely dead, and capable of saving ourselves, and capable of getting to heaven, and capable of getting to God. And what did God do on our behalf? He made us alive. And it happens when you and I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ unbelievers are spiritually dead but God gives us spiritual life through our belief in Christ and this is what Jesus calls the new birth being born from above why do I need to be born again in very clear language only those who are born again have their sins forgiven and have a relationship with God I want you to understand that. This is the line of demarcation. Only those who are born again have their sins forgiven and have a relationship with God. You may have been religious for decades like Nicodemus. Jesus would say to you what he said to Nicodemus, that you must be born again. Being baptized as an infant does not save you. Infant baptism does not give you the Holy Spirit. Infant baptism does not make you a believer. Infant baptism makes a baby wet. <laughs> it does not impart anything to you spiritually. God does a work in you spiritually. Spiritually and He makes you alive, and you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Going to church does not save you. A saved person will go to church because he wants to grow in his faith. He wants to fellowship with his uh, believers, fellow believers that he loves. But attending church does not get you to heaven. Being religious, being spiritual, in whatever sense you can think of that, does not save you. Nobody, nobody was more religious than Nicodemus. And Jesus was telling Nicodemus, you're about to miss it. You must be born again. Being a good, decent person does not save you. To be born again, you must believe in Jesus, Now, what does that mean? What does it mean, I must believe in Jesus? What does that really mean? I'm going to spell it out for you, literally. Here's what it means. Believing in Jesus means that you believe who Jesus is. That he's the Messiah, that he is God in the flesh. That's part of believing in Jesus. Believing in Jesus means that you believe what Jesus has done. What did Jesus do? He died on a cross to pay for our sins. And he rose from the grave to give us eternal life. So do you believe who Jesus is? Do you believe what Jesus has done for you? And the third thing is this. Believing in Jesus means surrender. Surrender to him. You surrender control. And this is is the biggest hang-up of them all. This is the one that proud, stubborn Americans, individualists, are not going to back down on on their watch, right? I'm not giving up control to anybody. Listen to me. Jesus says, you must be born again. And the person who said that is not your little buddy Jesus. It's not some ancient teacher Jesus. It is the Lord Jesus overall. all. You must be willing to surrender control. You know what surrender is. Your history books. You go back and you study World War II. What happened in World War II? You raised the white flag. Japan surrendered. They gave up control to the victor. And there's a battle going on in your heart right now where you're saying, I'm not wanting to give up control to Jesus or anybody. Jesus requires, because he's Lord over all, that you surrender to him. You must submit to Jesus as Lord over all. Today, will you answer the Spirit of God as He speaks to your heart?